This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. At Christian Chapel, each week before we preach, we're sharing stories of what God has done. And uh, if you have those, you can send them to us at praise at christianchapel.com. We love hearing your stories, telling your stories of God's healing, God's salvation, God's deliverance, his provision. We believe in 2023, he's called us to express our gratitude for what he's done and also continually ask him to do it again. This morning's story comes from Donna Bailey. Donna says, on Sunday, March 14th, 2022, my family and I were visiting Christian Chapel for just our third time. We had been praying for a church, for our family, to plant ourselves and grow. We were asking God that if Christian Chapel was where we were supposed to be, that he would confirm it to us. At the end of the service on March 14th, Pastor Chris was about to dismiss us. Before he did, he said that Rubens Cunha had felt led by the Holy Spirit to pray for healing before we left. He then invited Rubens to pray. I'd come to church that morning in extreme pain and had been praying the night before for healing. My left ear had been hurting for several days, and the pain was moving into the left side of my face, causing numbness and pain. I wasn't sure what was wrong, but had thoroughly freaked myself out by Googling my symptoms. As Rubens prayed, I placed my hand over my ear and prayed with him. As I left church that day, my ear still hurt, but when we got in the parking lot and into our car to leave, I heard a whisper telling me, I have kept your condition from worsening. I immediately felt a cold sensation from my head to my toes. My ear started feeling better, and the pain slowly subsided. I knew right away that I was healed. Two days later, at an appointment with my doctor, I learned that I had shingles, and that was what had caused my ear pain and had caused it to spread. My doctor told me that normally it would last at least a few weeks, and the pain would get worse before it would get better. But my pain never got worse after that healing prayer, and I was completely healed within four days of that prayer. Donna said, it was a great reminder that God hears and God heals, and was also a wonderful confirmation to their family that this is where God had called them and planted them. Uh, And so each week we're praying, Lord, thank you for what you've done, and we're praying, Lord, will you do it again? I know for some of us, we hear those, those healing stories, and they are both encouraging, and then maybe at the same time it creates a little bit of but why haven't I experienced it yet? And there's always mystery in healing. There are always spaces where we can't control. All we know is what the scriptures tell us, that when we're sick, we ask God for healing, and we trust that he gives it to us as a gift. It's not something we earn or deserve, something that we can manipulate or achieve on our own, but something he releases. And so as a church, we want to say thank you for what he's done and also ask him to do that again. So if you've come in this morning with a physical need, uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of gratitude and also a prayer of healing. So maybe just grab the hand of the person sitting next to you, put your hand uh, over the the part of your body where you need healing if you're comfortable doing that, or, or just lift your hand up right where you are, and we're going to pray together. Jesus, We come today and we thank you for Donna's story. We thank you, Lord, for its reminder to us that when we pray, you hear, and that when we're sick, you heal. Jesus, we ask today that you would help us to express our appreciation and our gratitude to you when you do those things in our lives and to celebrate joyfully with others when you do them for them. 
And now today, Jesus, we ask, will you continue to release your gifts of healing among us? You see every sickness, every disease. You see every symptom and every struggle. We ask now, Lord, will you come and drive out pain? Will you eliminate inflammation? Will you restore vision? Will you restore hearing? Will you drive out every form of discomfort? Will you take away every form of destruction in our bodies this morning? We ask that you would release your gifts of healing through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that healing is a gift you give. And so we come acknowledging our need and positioning ourselves to receive all that you would have for us. Jesus, we believe that you still heal, that you still hear, and you're still acting to show yourself powerful in our lives and in the world. So as you do that today, we receive your healing, we receive wholeness, and we commit that we will testify to your goodness, your grace, and your provision as we experience it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. We've called that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And so we're working our way story by story through the the story of Acts, which is the story of the early church in the days and years after Jesus' ascension and kind of how it takes off by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Today we're going to talk about what it means to be generous from Acts chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, we'll be there in just a moment. Um, One of the the challenges of preaching a a longer series of messages like the book of Acts is you never know exactly what passage is going to hit on what day. And so, you know, late last year I would sit down and kind of plot out, okay, here's the outline for Acts and here's what we'll work through. And you get an idea of what dates will come, but then we have guest speakers who come. And then sometimes we come to a passage and what I thought would be one week turns into two or three weeks worth of messages and and it just kind of gets bumped out and so on graduate Sunday we find ourselves in a passage on generosity which doesn't necessarily seem to go together um, but it's better than next week on Mother's Day when we talk about Ananias and Sapphira so we're just going to trust that the Lord has a plan to use that story and if you don't know why that story and Mother's Day don't go together you can just read ahead uh, this week, and, and you'll discover pretty quickly. So um, thankfully, my mom came today instead of next week, so we're just going to hit generosity and not talk about killing people on Mother's Day. Uh, but generosity and Graduate Sunday, I think, actually is a good one, because if you're a graduate, um, you've heard a lot of things so far. You've heard congratulations. You've heard we're proud of your hard work. Uh, you, you've heard all of these things and more. As a parent of, of a high school graduate this year, as a parent of hopefully some more future high school graduates and maybe some college graduates, uh, what we know is the, the, under, the underlying concern for every graduate at least from a parent perspective, is, hey, we are really proud of you. We are really excited for you. Now get a job and move out, right? Because uh, there's two words. Like, as a parent, you want all kinds of things for your graduate. You want them to love Jesus. You want them to find healthy relationships. You want them to uh, just thrive in all kinds of life. But there are two words you're really longing for for every child, and that's financial independence, you would just pray, yeah, like, just see, some of us are like, yes, my 37-year-old still doesn't get it, but if you could help them, right, it's just, it's something we long for, and so I think on Graduate Sunday, talking about generosity is actually helpful, because if we're going to talk about, hey, our hopes for you as a graduate is that you launch out, you become a, a fully functioning, fully contributing adult member of the body of Christ, adult member of our community, um, that's always going to include some level of financial independence, and financial Financial independence from a Christian perspective must always include generosity. 
Right, and so what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 4 is a picture of an extremely generous church, and that generosity, it creates a really powerful witness in the community. And where it kind of will land this morning is that generous churches are growing churches, growing churches are generous churches. And generous disciples are growing disciples, and growing disciples are generous disciples. And so Acts 4 this morning, in the midst of this story of signs and wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out, this portion of Acts chapter 4 reminds us that even in the midst of all those supernatural things, one of the greatest signs of the work of Jesus in your life is when you become a generous person with your finances. So Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, we'll start in verse 32. You can follow along with me. If not, it will be here on the screens for you. It says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need." So the the first thing we see is in verse 32, this idea of unity and generosity. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And and I know for some of us that, that idea of nothing I have belongs to me and we all share everything, um, for some of us the the alarm bells start to go off of, well, that's communism, uh, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to endure this message. That's not at all what's happening here, right? And and we'll get to that later. It's not the idea of there is somehow generosity being enforced on these believers, but where we see generosity beginning is in the unity they find in community. Before they talk about their generosity towards each other, before it talks about their willingness to sell their possessions and give the money to others, it says that the believers were all united. They were all together. They were of one heart and one mind. It meant that their passion for Jesus and their connection to him and through him to each other fueled their desire to be generous. And so it's not generosity in isolation. It's not generosity without relationship, but it's generosity. Generosity rooted in the fact that I have been brought into not just a community or a church, but I've been brought into a family. And in a family, I have mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. And when I see my family in need and I evaluate my resources and it's within my power to do something about it, then I'm going to naturally respond in generosity towards them, not out of a sake of religious duty or obligation, but out of love for my brothers and sisters. In Christ. And so the first thing you have to understand this morning is generosity grows in community. Right? Generosity is not about just you adopting a specific spiritual discipline and giving away a set amount of your income out of every paycheck. But generosity begins with you making a decision, I'm going to plant myself in a community, and in this community, I'm going to get to know others, and I'm going to let them get to know me. And I'm going to listen and learn about the needs of their life, and I'm going to share the needs of my life with them. And so if if you're in that kind of college graduate, high school graduate stage, and you're getting ready to launch out into your own life, into your own world of financial independence, before I would tell you, you need to make an effort effort to be generous, I would tell you you need to make an effort to be planted in community. 
Right? And I would say the same thing to any believer of any age today. If the idea of generosity is somehow off-putting or scary to you, don't start with your focus there. Start with your focus on, God, will you help me connect so deeply with other believers? Will you help me develop such deep and meaningful relationships with them that I care about their needs and I know that they care about mine? And from that position of love and security, generosity can't help but grow. And so the most important thing that we need to do for our generosity is we need to anchor ourselves in community. Community is personal. Community is relationships. Community is time together. It's worshiping together. It's serving together. It's eating together. It's praying together. Community requires determined effort. You see it all the way through over and over and over again in the story of Acts and the story of the early church. It's people who are called to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and take their place in the community of the church. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we all have to evaluate, before we even evaluate our generosity this morning, we're evaluating, am I planted in community? Do I have a sense of unity with other believers? And if you do, I'm not saying you won't have to make intentional choices to be generous. I'm just saying it's going to be easier to make those choices. Because the people you see are, not, are now not just anonymous faces on a screen or stories in an email, but they are your brothers and sisters. They are your friends. They're the people who've been in your home and you've been in theirs. And when they have a need and you have the ability to meet it, it becomes your privilege and your joy to do so. And so if we want to be generous, we have to live in community together. And what we see in Acts chapter 4 is as the church begins to live in this type of community, their generosity toward each other explodes to the point where they can now say to be a Christian means there is no needy person among us. Everybody's fed, everybody has a home, everybody has clothes, everybody is taken care of. And what happened in the first century was that incredible generosity that was fueled by their unique unity created an even more powerful witness to the message of the apostles, which helps us then understand witness, not just, or or generosity, not just as something we do, but also as one of the primary ways we preach and share the gospel of Jesus. You see this idea of witness and generosity being connected in verse 33, it says, with great power, The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So as as you read through the story of Acts, you see the apostles preaching and often their messages are confirmed with signs and wonders, right? With, With miraculous healings. What we're being told here in Acts, though, is almost on equal footing with miracles, signs, and wonders is the generosity of God's people towards each other as far as its effectiveness in confirming the gospel to the world. Right, which, which preaches to us that our generosity is always greater than even the person we're making a gift to. Our generosity always goes beyond the project, but your generosity is always part of your witness. And so for the early church, the, the, they noticed that Christians don't go hungry. They noticed that Christians were not homeless. They noticed that Christians, the widows were cared for and the orphans were taken in. 
Christians did not mourn alone. Christians did not suffer alone. Christians did not die alone. Why? Because they have been united in community together. And from that community, an overflowing sense of generosity toward each other continually sprung up to the point that there were no needy persons among them. And in a world defined by need, greed, and selfishness, a community where everyone is known, loved, and cared for shines like a city on a hill. And so what Acts is teaching us is generosity is attractive. Generosity is magnetic. Generosity draws others in. And and so we're going to embrace that idea in our life as well. And and you know this from your own experience. Think Think of your favorite family members. Right, not kids, because you love them all equally, and, and, but your extended family members. Your favorite extended family members are generous. Right, think of your friends. Your favorite friends are generous. Your, your favorite people at Christian Chapel are generous. Your favorite coworkers are generous. There, I would argue there's probably not a single person in your life that you think they're one of my favorite people to hang out with, and they are stingy and selfish. Right? You, you don't enjoy hanging out with a guy that's like, let me take you to lunch, and then I'm going to spend the whole time telling you how much your lunch cost me. Right? Hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner, and I'm going to tell you how much those steaks were, and you better enjoy every single bite. Right? Nobody enjoys that. In the same way with churches, generous churches are attractive to people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Stingy churches are repulsive. Right, the idea of generosity and Christian is that the two should be able to be used almost interchangeably. Now, you can't be generous without being a Christian, but biblically, you can't really be a Christian without being generous. It's not that you are saved by your generosity, but when you have stepped into relationship with Jesus and you understand just how much he has done for you, you can't help but respond in generosity to others around you. And that type of, that type of community that's created when we are generous towards each other lets others know, in this place, you will be welcome. In this place, you will be known. In this place, you will be loved. In this place, you will be cared for. Generosity as witness is a way we declare to the world that we reject the idols of materialism and wealth and instead embrace a model of life where what I have I will freely share with you if you're in need. Generosity marks the church as the sons and daughters of God and sets us apart from the world around us. And so generosity is essential. What Acts is telling us here is is in some ways generosity is just as important to the advancement of the gospel as signs, wonders, and miracles. And so as much as we're praying, Lord, will you release gifts of healing? Lord, will you confirm your message with signs and wonders? We should also be praying, Lord, will you make me an extravagantly generous person? Will you help me contribute to a generous nature within our church? Will you help my generosity well up and overflow into the lives of others? And Lord, if I'm in need, will you help me to be a grateful recipient of the generosity of others as well? And so you see in Acts, generosity is not just a religious discipline that we embrace for our own benefit, but it's part of sharing the good news of Jesus with the world. Generosity creates a platform for others to notice the work of Christ, and when they ask for us to tell them the reason we care for each other, the reason there are no needy persons among us, the reason everybody has food, everybody has shelter, everybody has clothing, is because of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. 
And then as you, as you keep reading through the story of Acts chapter 4, you find that generosity is also voluntary. Verse 34, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, I think it is very important to understand the generous lifestyle described in Acts chapter 4 is entirely voluntary. The apostles were not standing at the front door of their house churches asking people, before you enter our community, we're going to need to get that deed to your property. They weren't standing there. Nobody's meeting you at the front of Christian chapel saying, we would love to welcome you as a member. Why don't you go ahead and sign that car over to us? Right? We, we have a, a special level of membership once you give your bank account passwords to us. That doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. If you're ever invited into a religious community where that's one of the entrances, it's a cult and you should run fast and far away. Right? Biblically, there is no idea of to say yes to Jesus means you have to turn over control of your finances to someone else. What you see in Acts chapter 4 is a group of believers who own land, who own homes, who have money, and from time to time, as they notice needs around them, they act. Voluntary generosity is the only type of generosity there actually is. Coerced generosity isn't generosity. Enforced generosity isn't generosity. That becomes just another form of legalism that kind of spoils everything that it touches. And so as followers of Jesus, when we want to be generous people, we're understanding I'm not going to give so that other people are impressed by me. I'm not going to give so I can earn some fame or recognition. I'm not going to give so that I can get God to try to answer this prayer I'm praying really hard. I'm going to give because it's the voluntary response of a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. And so what we, what we see in Acts chapter 4 are, are four quick characteristics of generous people. So we've already mentioned the first characteristic. The first characteristic is generous people live in community with other believers. Now that's important because if you're going to be aware of the needs of other believers, you have to live with them. Uh, You have to know their story and they have to know yours. An interesting point I think here for us to consider is that the early church was an economically diverse church. And so if you look at your friend groups within your faith and they are all people who make the same amount of money that you do, who can go on the same trips, live in the same kind of homes, drive the same kind of cars, something's missing in your relationships. And so we should all strive. I want to have friends who make more money than me. I want to have friends who make less money than me. I want to have friends who make the same amount of money as me. I don't want economics to become the factor that decides who I get to be in relationship with. But that's one of the ways that the enemy works. Particularly, it's one of the ways he works in the American church. Because he comes and tells you, like, you can't hang out with them. They're going to go on a vacation that you can't afford. Or you can't hang out with them because you make too much money and you make everyone uncomfortable when you pull up to a home group in your nice car. Or you can only, you've just got to find this little window sliver of people who are right in your same stage of life that you will be comfortable with. What's happening there is the enemy's just coming and using our, our finances as another tool of division, where instead what we see in the scriptures is rich, poor, we all worship Jesus together. And we all have something to offer and something to receive. And so when I say I, I hope I have friends who are wealthier than me, it's not because I, I hope they're wealthier than me and maybe they'll give me some money. 
Maybe they'll give me a car. They've got four, right? Maybe they'll give me a boat. Maybe they'll give me a home. It's not that at all. It's that they're my brother and sister in Christ. I'm sure they obviously have things that I can learn from. But I also want to know people who are in other economic standings than me, who might be higher, who might be lower, because every person who follows Jesus has something to teach other people who follow Jesus. So we're not going to let economics be the thing that divides us. The other reason we want to have economically diverse relationships is it puts us in a position to be generous. It puts us in a position to know others and know their stories and to be part of meeting God's need in their life. The, the second characteristic that we see in acts of generous people is they're good stewards of their resources. It says there were those who owned homes and those who owned land. So what that tells us is there were people in the early church who had been successful in business. Right? They, they had accumulated things. They had been disciplined. They had worked hard. They had worked well. And so what we have to understand is if we want to be generous, we have to be good stewards, good managers of what God has entrusted to us. So again, on Graduate Sunday, where we're considering that is if you're a graduate getting ready to launch out into your career, one of the best models of stewardship you can embrace this morning is rejecting the lie of our culture that says every time your income elevates, your lifestyle has to elevate too. And choosing to live below your means so you always have the means to be generous to others who are in need. And we see this in the scriptures again and again and again. It's not that the scriptures are against uh, private ownership of property. They're not against people possessing wealth. They're not against Christians having money. We'll see later in Acts that believers have money and they help each other when they're in need. So it's not that the early church gets started and says, okay, we now don't believe in any kind of income or property, right? But, but in particular times and particular places, they're evaluating the needs of others, right? Which leads us to that third characteristic. They look for opportunities to give. Generous people understand that generosity is not an event. It's a lifestyle. Generosity is not something you do once or twice and then kind of check the box for the rest of your life of, hey, remember that one time 30 years ago when we made that one extravagant gift? Thank God we got that out of the way early in marriage and could do what we want the rest of our life, right? That, that's not it. Biblical generosity means every dime that God blesses me with. I understand that I'm a steward of it. It's just passing through my hands, and I'm going to look for opportunities to give. And again, one of the, the primary ways that we become aware of opportunities is by living in relationship with other believers, and one of the beauties of the world that we live in is our, our, our awareness of the needs of other believers is now not restricted to those that we interact with on a daily basis. Through ministries like Royal Family Kids Camp, we become aware of the needs of children in our community. Through our Kingdom Builders partners who are working all over the world, we become aware and have opportunities to participate in what God is doing in, in Africa, in India, in China, in South America, all over the world and all over our country. But as followers of Jesus, we understand generosity means I believe that God has blessed me so I will constantly look for opportunities to give. Stingy people are the ones who turn their eyes away. Stingy people are the ones who hear we have a missionary coming next week, better not show up, they might get me, right? Stingy people are the ones who when they hear a person is in need begin to withdraw from that relationship. Generous people look for opportunities to give. And then the, the last characteristic we see of generous people in Acts chapter 4 is they make the gift. Right? Generosity is not about your intention, it's about your action. You could intend to be an incredibly generous person. Right? You could have, Angie and I sometimes will have talks of, if we had more money than we knew what to do with. Right? And, and sometimes we'll have uh, 
just, I mean, to be honest, really selfish stuff of like, we'd buy the truck, we'd build the pool, we'd do all that kind of stuff. Sometimes we have the like, man, if we had more money than we knew what to do with, we would pay off their mortgage. We would take care of those medical, we would do all those types of things. But here's the thing, you can have those talks and feel really good about all the things you would do if you had more money. But that doesn't make you a generous person. What makes you a generous person is making the gift. You have to get to the point of, I'm aware of the need, I've evaluated my resources, I have the ability to meet the need, and now I have to act. I have to give. They sold the land, they sold the homes, they brought the money to the apostles, they laid it at their feet for them to distribute. Which leads us to the the next characteristic of generosity, it's anonymous generosity. Now, biblically, generosity is not always anonymous. We find examples all through the scriptures of men and women hearing God's voice to be a generous person and going directly to a person in need and making a gift to them. I know in my own life, there have been seasons where I have been the recipient of a direct gift from someone else, where they've told me, the Lord spoke to me to give this to you so that you would know he's heard you and he wants to provide. And those are, those are wonderful moments. But what we see in Acts chapter 4 is a practice that will be embraced in many ways in the church. It was a carryover from Judaism, and it's a practice of anonymous generosity where the needs of God's people are met through God's people, but conducted through the church. And so the reason that they would sell their homes or lands and bring the money and lay it at the apostles' feet was for two, two primary reasons. First of all, it's better for the recipient of a gift to get that gift from a church as a sign of God's grace, favor, and provision because it enables the person receiving the gift to believe God has seen me and provided for me instead of just attributing all the credit to the person who made the gift. And so, so this happens all the time at Christian Chapel. In fact, it happens so often that I now have a form letter that I keep that we send with these gifts. And so there, there I mean, on a, a monthly, sometimes a weekly basis, there are members of Christian Chapel who say, I became aware of a need of someone in our community. I know that they, they're experiencing loss. I know they're experiencing difficulty. I know they've had these unforeseen medical bills. I know they're trying to adopt but don't know how it's going to be funded. I know they're leading these organizations and, and don't understand how it's all going to work out. I know that this has happened or that has happened. And they'll reach out to us and they'll say, I want to make a gift, but I want to do it anonymously. And so they'll give it to the church. And we will cut that check, and there's a letter that I sign that goes in with it every time that says, we want you to know God spoke to someone at Christian Chapel about your situation. They wanted to make a gift, but we want you to receive it as a sign of God's provision in your life. Which anonymous giving then puts us in a place where we don't have a few benefactors that we all turn to in our moment of need, but instead we're able to receive those as gifts from God and give him the glory, him the honor, him the praise for the provision that we've received in our life. This was the structure of much of the giving in the early church. People had resources, they brought them to the apostles, and then the apostles distributed them. We'll see later in Acts that the needs become so great and the giving so great that the apostles have to bring in another group of men to help distribute those gifts on a regular basis because generosity was so contagious and so effective and the needs of the world so great that they couldn't keep up with it on their own. The other aspect of anonymous generosity is it is good for the giver. When we give anonymously, it's a way for us to make sure that our motives are pure, that we're not giving for the recognition of the recipient, 
That we're not giving so that they know they, that maybe they owe us something down the road. That we're not giving in any way. We'll get into next week what happens when we give with the wrong motives. And just kind of the spoiler is it's not good. So don't do it, right? So anonymous giving is one of the ways that we're going to avoid that. Now again, scripturally, there are times when you give and it's not anonymous and that's okay. But what we see here is at least in some way for every one of us, an expression of our generosity should have some element of anonymity to it. So that's what happens when you give at Christian Chapel. That's what happens when we give through Kingdom Builders. Our gifts are going to work all over the world among people who will never know us, never see our face, never even know to say thank you to us. But as the giver, that's actually really good for my soul and that's good for your soul because we're not giving for the applause of others. We're giving as an act of worship to Jesus and an expression of concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so anonymous giving puts us in a, a position of freedom, really, because it also frees us up from being the first person that someone turns to when they're in need. Because as followers of Jesus, the last thing we want is for others to look at us as their source of provision. We want them to know it's Jesus who heard your prayer. It's Jesus who acted in my heart and compelled me to give. And now it's Jesus through whom you're receiving this gift that's meeting your need. And so we want to give. We want to give generously. And often we want to give anonymously. What we see in, in the story of Acts chapter 4 is that generosity is necessary for growing churches and growing disciples. If we want to grow as a follower of Christ, right? If you're here this morning, you're saying, I just, I feel like I'm kind of coming up against a, a point where I can't grow past as a follower of Jesus. In addition to evaluating your prayer life and evaluating your connection to others and evaluating how much time you're spending in scripture, in addition to all of those things, I would also encourage you, evaluate your generosity. Generosity opens your heart towards God. Generosity fights against greed. Generosity, I mean, there is no better way to tell money it doesn't have a hold on you than to give it away, right? To, to, I, think, I think so little of your power in my life that I will just give you away. Generosity is essential to growing disciples. And for us as a community of believers, if we want to grow in our kingdom impact and we want to grow in our kingdom influence, we must remain a generous church. And, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful. Christian Chapel is almost 50 years old. Angie and I have been a part of it for 18 years. And we have been recipients of that generosity. We've participated in that generosity. We've watched the difference it makes around the world. We've seen it historically throughout the life of our church. Most churches over their lifetime will spend more money on buildings and grounds than they will give away to missions. The story of Christian Chapel in over 50 years is that we have given away more to missions than we've spent on our own building and grounds. And I believe because because of that generosity around the world and in our community is one of the reasons God has continued to bless us as a congregation, right? And it's also one of the things that makes it an attractive community for others to be a part of. And so generosity is never just for a small subset of Christians. Generosity, like there shouldn't be any of us this morning thinking, I hope those rich people are listening, right? Generosity is never a sermon for someone else. It's always a sermon for me. It's always a challenge to me. It's always God's plan for me. And as I take ownership and you take ownership, generous churches are only created by generous disciples. I've never seen a generous church full of stingy people. Right? And, and so if we want to say this is who we want to be as a community, then this is who we have to be as individuals. 
And as we, as we kind of wrap it up this morning, if I were to leave uh, three words, especially for our graduates, three words to kind of guide your process of generosity. I would leave these three with you, manager, tithe, and trust. And so these ideas, some of them come directly from Acts chapter 4. Some of them come from the larger biblical teaching on what it means to live a generous life. But the first one, to, to be a manager, is another way of saying be a steward. Right? What we see in Acts chapter 4 is believers who are managing their resources. Now what we understand about managers is managers are not owners. Managers are just people who are responsible for the resources of someone else. And what we all need to understand this morning is no matter how talented we are, no matter how intelligent we are, no matter how, how hardworking we are, no matter how creative we are, no matter how many people in the world say they don't know how we did what we did or achieved what we achieved, we understand we are just temporary managers of resources that belong to God. He's the one who gave me the ability to be born at the right time, in the right place, to the right family, in the right circumstances. He's the one who gave me the intelligence. He's the one who gave me the creativity. He's the one who gave me the work ethic. He's the one who opened the doors of business and opportunity. He's the one who arranged for me to earn the degree. He's the one who provided the scholarship. He's the one who gives the increase. He's the one who authored the promotion. He's the one who sustains the business. He's the one who helped me forecast the market turn and make the right decision at the right time. And the more successful we are, the more people call us owner and president and applaud us, the more important it is for us to remember, I'm just a manager. These are just temporary resources passing through my hand. And my only responsibility is to steward them as well as I can in this season to be part of building God's kingdom with my life and with my resources. The second word I would give to each of us to evaluate and reflect on our generosity is tithe. Tithing is a, an Old Testament principle of giving the first 10% of our income to the Lord. Now, sometimes Christians will argue of, yeah, tithing's Old Testament, but we're New Testament Christians, so we don't do that. And I, I can't tell you, that, that's one of my favorite conversations to have. I love it. Because I will always tell someone, you are correct. You are right. There is no New Testament command that you must give 10%. In fact, all Jesus says is that you should give so your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. And what he means is you should give so naturally, so, so frequently, so regularly, so abundantly, and so excessively that you don't even think about it anymore. That in the same way you don't think about breathing or tying your shoe, you're going to give that easily. Because I know if you will give that way, you will give so much more than 10%. Right? It, it will just explode way beyond that. But I know all I can tell you for Angie and I is we've always used that biblical principle of tithing as our baseline for generosity. And we said this is, this is the minimum amount of generosity that we're going to make sure we always have in our life. And as we've done that, and I know if we went around the room, many of you could tell the same stories and the same testimonies of you have learned over and over and over again that God can do more with 90% than you could ever do with 100%. I remember Angie and I about 10 years ago meeting with a financial planner and as we laid out all of our bills and we laid out all of our income and he looked us in the eye and he said, well, this is a real loaves and fishes miracle, isn't it? We we're like, more than you know. He was like, how do you pay it? We're like, we don't know. We don't know. It just works. 
Every month, it works. Every year, it works. And it doesn't mean there haven't been times where money was tight. It doesn't mean we haven't had to budget. It doesn't mean we haven't had hard conversations when our expenses start to exceed our income. But what it means is in our over 20 years of being married, and in the years we started before that, even as teenagers, of practicing that discipline on the advice of our parents and pastors, it means that God has always provided. And so we have never seen tithing as some kind of legalistic burden being placed on us. We've seen it as a brilliant guideline from God that instills financial discipline in our lives and positions us in a place of continual stewardship and generosity where we're able to remember every two weeks when we get paid, the Lord is our provider and that's the first gift we're going to make. Right? And, and so we, we never talk in terms of paying our tithe. We only talk in terms of giving what God has given to us. And so if I could tell you anything as you launch out into your journey of generosity or maybe as